0: So, okay, let's go ahead and get started. Our time is very short, 45 minutes. The uh, the one thing I'm going to try to do with this is we're, we're going to talk about 11 things to know about the new earth in the eternal state. I'm not going to try to cover everything in Revelation 21 to 22. I tried to do that one time a few years ago, and it just had to be in super hurry trying to cover everything. So this time, I'm just being open about it. We're not covering everything that could be said about the new earth. But I am drawing attention to... 11 things, 11 things to know. So this is an interesting I- issue just because oftentimes discussion of eschatology goes towards uh day of the Lord or even the millennium, which is often very controversial. And of course, if you get into the millennium, you know, you're dealing with uh, which millennial view is right. And there's three millennial views, but then there's different versions of each millennial view. In one sense, we're not we're not going there on the millennium. I mean, I am, a, I am a premillennialist. I think the second coming brings the millennium of Christ upon earth. There's a reign of Christ from and over the earth. Uh, but our main thing here is to focus on the new earth uh, in the eternal state. And it is interesting, like if, if you take the millennial issue out of it, there's, I don't want to overstate it, but there's starting to be more agreement amongst particularly premillennialist and even amillennialist on the tangible, real nature of the new earth. So even though Amills and pre-mills may differ strongly on the millennium, when it comes to the new earth part of the eternal state, there's starting to be some more agreement on, on some, some key areas. But our main thing here is to you know focus on uh, 11 things to know about the new earth in the eternal state. So let's start. I, I thought a good place to begin to be, you know, I have this up on the screen here, 2 Peter 3. 13, which tells us what our what our hope is. This says, 2 Peter 3, 13 says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the hope of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's obviously the hope of what you see in Revelation 21 and 22. And so I think it's fair to say, you know, based on this passage and others that of course, there's an intermediate heaven right now. If you were to die before the second coming of Christ, that would be a glorious, great place to be. But that's not, that's not the final destiny. Um, there's a lot of hymns, a lot of songs, a lot of things that are just kind of in the culture that almost seem to indicate that our destiny is in a heaven far, far away forever. That's actually not true. I mean, our, our destiny uh, is related uh, to the earth. Uh, Revelation 5.10, uh, it's a heavenly scene what we're told in reference to Jesus, you have made them to be a kingdom, they will reign upon the earth. So one thing that I've seen as you're studying, even the heavenly scenes of Revelation, they end up having a focus upon uh, the earth and the kingdom that's to to come. Even with uh, Revelation 6, 9 to 11, you have these martyrs who appear up in heaven, and, they're, and, and we have these martyrs, they get up in heaven, and they're saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood upon the earth? <laughs> so they're actually looking for justice on the earth, return to the earth. You know, and when you get to Revelation 20, verse 4, those martyrs, they come to life, and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. So that's where the earthly reign uh, begins to take place, right after the second coming of Christ. So Second Peter 3.13 is very important. That's what we're looking for. You know, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth. Again, dis- I'm not here to talk about millennial issues so much, but I, there's a sense in which I would see the millennium as kind of like a first phase of that with what's described in Revelation 21 to 22 is like a culminating aspect to the kingdom. Revelation 21.1 says, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so you have that explicit language there, uh, both in 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21. Uh, We don't have time to go back to it, but you also find references to the new heaven and new earth in uh, Isaiah 65, 17. Then there's also a reference in Isaiah 66. So two explicit references in the Old Testament, two explicit uh, references uh, in the new. Uh, I, I mentioned here that Christians often have not given enough attention to the new earth in the eternal state or assume that it is beyond contemplation. And so sometimes discussions of eternity are just shut off right away because we've been taught that, oh, it's so beyond anything we could think, so don't even try to think about it. And obviously, it's going to be more glorious than anything we can fathom, but let's not fall off the other side of the log either. I mean, if there's scripture telling us things about it, let's study it. So let's not overdo it or underdo it. <laughs> so, but I, th- I think oftentimes the tendency in church history is just to so spiritualize eternity and then just say, oh, we can't know anything about it, so let's not even try. And then we get all kinds of bad ideas of what it is. I'm not aware of any scripture that tells us to avoid thinking about the new earth because it is too hard to understand or so transcendent that any contemplation of it is futile. So I don't think that's the case. But again, I do think there's a sense in which even as you look at Revelation 21 and 22, it's almost like looking to a room through a keyhole. Obviously, what's being described is just a, just a glance of what it's like, just a, a little tidbit. Um, so we're not saying we understand everything that, that there is, but there are some things we can know. So let's go through this in a survey format again, understanding that there are some uh, things that, um, you know, there's some things we're not going to cover. So this isn't exhaustive. But number one, the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation 21 to 22 comes after the millennium of Revelation 20. So you have a series of Kai Don formulas, and I saw, and I saw, and, and I saw, starting in Revelation 1911 through 218, seems to indicate a kind of progression in the story. So you have like tribulation, return of the Lord, uh, millennial kingdom, and then the eternal state. So this is coming after the millennium of Revelation 20 and Jesus's handing of the kingdom over to the Father as described in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 28. So there's some interesting information in 1 Corinthians 15 related to the eternal state. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 28, Paul's talking about the resurrection program. And, he's, and Jesus is the first fruits. And then he talks about a couple other stages in the resurrection program. But in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four to 25, we have, Paul says, then comes the end, which it seems to me with the, the end concerning Jesus's kingdom, when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there ends up being this kingdom reign of the Messiah, and he must. So in other words, one of the things that's true about the millennium is it's, uh, uh, the, the spotlight in particular is on the sun that we know is Jesus, the Son and the Messiah. But notice that when the end comes, and this would be the end of the kingdom, which I would understand to be the end of the millennium, that is still future, that when the end comes, what does he do? He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. And so that's significant is there, there's a transition that occurs. So he's handing the kingdom over to the Father. Verse 28 says, "When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one, the Father, who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all." So again, this shows us that th- there is a transition. There is something, once this particular uh, reign of the Messiah takes place, that there's a transition. So it transitions over, um, there's a handing of the kingdom over to the Father. Now there's some other points that are coming up where I think we'll be able to expand on what's going on with that. But I think that's significant to know. The, the millennium particularly, the spotlight is on the Son and His reign. And when there is a, a true mission accomplished, you have a transition, the kingdom is handed over, and then you have the entering of eternity at that point. Okay, point number two would be, is that the new heaven and new earth parallel the heavens and earth of Genesis 1-1. So this is where you have protology, first things, meaning eschatology, which is last things. Genesis 1-1 told us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we're told in Revelation 21-1, the beginning of it, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this is where you're seeing everything put together. Obviously, you have the fall, you know, you have Genesis 1-2 to with the creation and then with Genesis 3, you have the fall. There is a sense in which you could say everything going on from Genesis 3 through Revelation 19 and 20 brings us to this culmination point where everything is fixed and is perfect and even better than before. So make sure that you're, you're connecting those things. You know, then I have a chart here where I talk about connections between creation and new creation. In Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and actually it's Genesis 1, 1 to 11 because I, I mentioned... Chapters 10 and 11 later. But anyway, connecting the first chapters of Genesis with Revelation uh, 21 and 22. Now, with this chart here, my intent, I can't, I can't go over all these points in detail. The, the big point that I'm getting at here is these parallels um, are striking. And again, it shows that the uh, there, there's, there's a plan to the storyline that's unfolding. <laughs> uh, the original creation, which was considered very good has been marred, it's, uh, because, you know, with man's sin. It's been subjected to futility, but everything is headed towards a, a restoration. So just very briefly, I mean, look, look at some of the uh, comparisons here. Uh, when you have God as creator maker, you know, Genesis 1-3 says uh, God created, and uh, in 2-4, in, in that day, the Lord God made earth and heaven. And if you compare that with the other side of the story, Revelation 21-5, I am making all things new. So you have the making with the beginning, making at the end. Heavens and earth, we already kind of covered that. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation one says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then when it comes to light, uh, Genesis 1.3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Revelation 22.5 indicates that the Lord God is going to illumine his people in the new Jerusalem. They will not have need of the light of a lamp because the Lord God will illumine them. So you have light on both sides. There's holy space in the sense of the, you know, you have the Garden of Eden uh, uh, in the midst of the earth, uh, Revelation uh, 21 and 22, you have the uh, the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the new earth. Uh, this issue of the presence of God with man, I think this is really important, is that uh, man was created to do uh, what he's supposed to do well, but it's to be done in the presence of God. Uh, it you know, we know from Genesis 3.8 that it appeared to be that Adam was, uh, you know, uh, used, would walk with God in the garden, and we're told in Revelation twenty one three, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. So you have man in the presence of God early in the story. Obviously, the fall is going to affect that. There's going to be taken out of the garden. And then when you get to the end, though, you know, it seems to me that you have... Um, it's a little more specific with the, with the Father and the Son, but it seems to me you have all members of the Trinity involved on the earth uh, with the new Jerusalem in the future. So presence of God with man is very important. And obviously, that assumes a proper relationship. The only ones that are going to be there are those who have you know, trusted in Christ for their uh, salvation. Uh, death uh, says in, that, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So there was the, uh, the statement that there could be death. If, if, if there was disobedience, we know that there was. Revelation 21.4 says there will no longer be any death. When it comes to the cursed, uh, the curse when uh, uh, there was the fall, cursed is the ground because of you. But in Revelation 22.3, there will no longer be any curse. I'll pick up the piece a little bit here. But with the river, you find a river that flowed out of Eden in Genesis 2.10. And uh, then we see in 22.1 in, uh, that he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throat of God and of the Lamb. So you have a river. Tree of life. G- uh, Genesis 2.9, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And then when you get to Revelation 22, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. So once sin enters the picture, there's expulsion from the garden, not allowed to eat from the tree, but you find access to that in the eternal state. Uh, The concept of ruling and reigning is there. Uh, you know, when man was created, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, talked about that man was to rule the earth and to subdue it. And when you get to the very last, uh, very last statement of the storyline about the new earth in Revelation 22, 5, because the rest is epilogue after that, we have the statement they will reign forever and ever. So that's the very last statement about the eternal state. Because like I said, once you hit verse 6, it's epilogue in the book of Revelation. So they will reign forever and ever. So I I make a real strong connection between that. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, man was created to rule and subdue. And obviously, I think that takes place in the millennium. We're told that in Revelation 20, verse 4. But we're also told that in on the final form of the new earth with Revelation 22, 5. Uh, Now, when it comes to the being, we now know as Satan. He shows up as a nefarious figure in chapter 3. So he's able to, uh, to do things. Uh, but we're told, uh, I understand we're dipping into Revelation chapter 20, but in verse 10, we're told the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. So you're going to have a binding of Satan in the millennium, but he's actually cast for his full eternal punishment uh, in the lake of fire, um, as, you know, w- as you get up to the uh, eternal state. When it comes to nations on the earth, understand you, you don't find nations in Genesis 1 to, 1 to 2, but you do find the table of nations in Genesis 10 to 11. Um, Nations seem to be something that carry over. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 24 says, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So that seems to indicate that you have nations that are going in and out of the new Jerusalem. You also have nations in, uh, when it comes to nations in harmony, obviously from Genesis 10 onward in a fallen world, obviously you have uh, nations and people groups that are fighting each other often. But in uh, Revelation 22, 3, we're told the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So it seems like the tree of life is connected with the, with the harmony. I, I don't think it's the case nations are fighting each other and then they need to be bandaged up. But there's a sense in which it helps maintain the harmony. So one of, one of the beautiful things of the eternal state is going to be uh, harmony amongst different ethnicities and nations, something that is almost unfathomable right now. Right now we have hatred and conquest ethic and people groups hating other people groups. <laughs> That won't be part of the uh, eternal state. Okay, so hopefully that point was well taken. We didn't do an exhaustive study, but we did talk about the fact that there's a lot of parallels between the beginning of the story and then the end of the story. And so one of the things we all should be interested in is uh, connecting dots, because obviously those, those when you see Genesis 1 to 11, compare that with Revelation 21 and 22, there's lots of points of comparison there. Number three, the new earth is a real place. It's a, it's a real place. Um, there are some today who are trying to say it's a figurative expression of our salvation. That's not true. I understand there is a sense in which we, you know, there's a, a, a sense in which we're a new, a new creation in Christ, become new creatures. That, of course, will be related to our presence on the new earth. But when we're talking about the new earth, we're not just talking about figurative for our salvation, nor are we just... Uh, using flowery language for something that's just an ethereal experience. It's a real place. Uh, I have a quote here from Alan Johnson in his commentary. He said, It is remarkable that John's picture of the final age to come focuses not on a platonic ideal. So in other words, not the Platonism ideal of just a spiritual existence or a distant paradise, but on the reality of a new earth and heaven. God originally created the earth and heaven to be man's permanent home. So this is a real place. Um, Revelation twenty one sixteen. When you look at the dimensions that are given, uh, particularly when you're looking at the uh, the width and the length, um, it would be uh, be roughly you know roughly uh, when it comes to the New Jerusalem that is the New Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the New Earth, ends up being roughly about half the size of of the United States. So we want to affirm it's a real place. And again, just compare. I mean, when we read Genesis one one in the you know, beginning, God you know made the heavens and the earth. We usually you know, say, oh, that's just figurative for you know, some kind of spiritual experience. It's a real thing. There's six days of creation. There's no reason to spiritualize when you get to the new heaven and the new earth. Number four, the father the father and son share a throne in the new Jerusalem. So it's pretty interesting because we're told, we got a couple statements here. <clears throat> so we're talking about a sharing of a throne in the new Jerusalem. And again, the new Jerusalem is the capital city of the new earth. So we're told in Revelation 22, 1b, the throne of God and of the Lamb. And Revelation 22, 3a, we're told about, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. So twice we're told that there's a throne, but it's a throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, that seems to be significant because in Revelation three twenty one, um, Jesus makes a distinction in thrones. He says, he who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So it seems to be before Revelation 21 and 22, you have a distinction in thrones. Jesus talks about my throne and he also talks about his throne you know, in reference to the father. So I think that's, again, I think Jesus's throne would be the throne of David. Uh, that's Luke 1, 32 to 33. The angel you know, told Mary he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. Roll over the house of Judah forever. <clears throat> and so I think that's also the throne of Matthew 25:31. When the Son of Man comes to glory with all his angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So the emphasis of David's throne, which I think is an earthly throne that comes in the future, will be on the, the throne where the Messiah rules in his earthly kingdom. Right now, we're told from Psalm 1101 and the use of that in the book of, in, in Acts and in Acts 2. Jesus is currently at the right hand of the father, but Hebrews 10, 12 to 13 will say he's waiting from that time onward uh, until his uh, kingdom reign begins. So the point that uh, getting at here is there, there seems to be when Jesus assumes his kingdom reign, he's going to sit on David's throne. He's going to rule over the earth, um, but there's coming. At, and then you have the father's throne. I would say the father's throne is the throne, uh, the universal throne where you have the sovereignty over the whole universe. So, it could be the case that you 're having a merger because we know Jesus reigns forever and ever, according to revelation eleven fifteen If we have one throne, perhaps it is a merger of those thrones jesus 's Davidic throne and the universal throne of God. I think that 's probably as good a theory as i've i 've seen, but anyway that 's important that you have uh, uh, you have the throne of God and of the Lamb, and it 's on the New earth in the New Jerusalem, so that seems to be. Um, this isn't a time to do a theology of God's presence in history, but it seems like there's an escalation. Obviously after the fall, you have a, you know, man's cut off from direct presence of God, although God's still working in the world, obviously. Then you have, you know, the glory of God, tabernacle temple. You have Jesus, you know, he's with his incarnation. um, That's greater than what had come before. And then you have the, the role of the spirit in this age with the indwelling. Jesus says, you know, if I go away, I'll send the spirit and this will be even better. When you get to the millennial kingdom, seems like obviously people have, are still indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but you actually have the sun ruling from and over the earth at the time of the second coming. But now when you get to the eternal state, you have appears to be all the members of the Trinity uh, on uh, the earth and related to the new Jerusalem at this particular time. Okay. Number five, we have uh, all sin and effects of the curse are removed forever. So we have a great statement here Um, this is one of my favorite verses. Uh, He will wipe away, so this this is all sin and effects of the curse are removed forever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So anything that would be associated with any kind of negative uh, impact of the fall in any way because of sin, uh, we see that that's going to, uh, be removed i don 't necessarily think that this is indicating a great memory erase where nobody remembers anything <laughs> from the past. if that was the case, we wouldn 't remember what the cross was about and other things, and we wouldn't have as much appreciation for what we 've been saved into, <laughs> but obviously anything that 's related to uh, a, a a world where there can still be uh, any kind of death or anything like that, that that's going to be totally uh, removed. I think that's important that's obviously a very practical point. Because obviously we live in a fallen world and we know of people who are getting sick all the time, accidents happen, cancer happens, death happens, all this sort of thing. Um, if we don't, th- this is a case where having this hope can really help us and help the people that we minister to. Obviously there's, when you get into theodicy and all kinds of things about dealing with the issue of God in a fallen world, there's obviously a lot of things you can bring up. Uh, but one of my favorites though, is that it, it, ter- it turns out good in the end. I mean, for those who are, to lo- those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think there's any commiserating on the new earth. I don't think there's anything that happens to us that is so bad now, and things are, can be very bad. They can be evil <laughs> and terrible, but there's nothing that's so bad now that it's not going to be made right in the future. So, like I said, I don't think there's going to be any commiserating. I don't think it's going to be the case that most people are going to be happy. But you know, John over there, he's struggling because he remembers back in 1993 this thing happened to him. Nope. It's going to be, <laughs> it's all going to be made right. Obviously, evil is going to be dealt with. You have the great white throne judgment. You know, everything's taken place. Those are in Christ. Obviously, Christ has, has taken their sin away. And so it's going to be a time where all negative things have, uh, have been removed and it will totally drown out anything that was negative during this particular age. I think that's part of the reason why we 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 do have to have eschatology as part of our worldview. Of course, we need to focus on how people can be saved in the here and now and live a good Christian life here and now. But like I said, Christianity is a worldview, and it includes the end. We have other worldviews that are given their version of the end, and it's not right. But we there's this hope for those who are in Christ. Of course, there's the the story doesn't end well for everybody. We're mostly focused on the good stuff here, but there's also forever for those who you know the, the Bible also talks about the lake of fire and being that there won't be access to the city and those things for those who don't belong because they haven't, you know, come God's way. Okay. Number six, uh, talked about this a little bit already, but, you know, man reigns over the earth in the presence of God. So, you know, again, you have that statement, you know, they will, they will reign, uh, they will reign forever. And of course we, you know, we link that with Genesis one twenty six to 28. And so, you know, I guess when you put this together, you know, Revelation 21, verse 3, literally, literally is they shall be his peoples, which I think points to the nations in verses 24 and 26 of Revelation 21. Uh, but anyway, you have, you know, they shall be his people. They shall be his peoples. Um, you know, the throne of God and of the Lamb, you know, are in the, are in the new Jerusalem. And so I really think the ultimate uh, thing, like in other words, like what's it all about? Like when we're thinking about this grand story from Genesis to Revelation, what is it all about? And I would say that what it's all about is for God's image bears to be in relationship with Him—a love that comes from the heart, a and a heart that God has given, a new heart that allows to obey. So there's that relationship, and there's also the function of reigning, because we you know we've pointed out before, you know, from the beginning and the end, there's a sense in which man needs to you know function. with with the rain upon the earth for the glory of God. But this is also done in God's presence. So in other words, when you put it together, relationship with God, functioning as we're supposed to do, and that's all done in his presence, in the presence of God, you know, the full members of the Trinity. That's really, that's really the ultimate. That's really what it's all about. All right. Number seven. Let's look at that here. The new earth uh, is probably probably is a restored and regenerated earth, and I said, probably here, I actually feel pretty strongly about this. I have, my confidence level will probably be around ninety percent on this issue, <laughs> but I understand there 's some differences of opinion i don 't want to bog down too much on the debate between annihilation theory and restoration theory and, and, and so when it comes to the new earth, you know, the, you know for the first heaven, the first earth passed away, second Peter three talks about it. A, a, a fiery destruction. First, I think that's more of like a purging fire than a, a nuclear bomb annihilation kind of fire. Um, so, you know, obviously there's there's some good people who hold to annihilation theory where in a sense God totally blows up the current planet, starts over with a new planet. And I understand the, the, the text that would be used to support that. seems to me the evidence is probably heavily tilted more towards that we're dealing with a restored, regenerated Earth. When you look at the story from the beginning to end, it seems to be more in the, you, you get a, you notice you know, some of the words that are being used here. Revelation 21 verse 5 talks about, Behold, I'm making all things new. Not all new things, <laughs> but all things new. Uh, if you read, I don't have time to go through a discussion of Romans 8, 19 to 23, but it does indicate that the creation's expectation is that of hope. It's, not, it's been subjected to futility in hope. It's not for annihilation eventually. And so... If you read Romans eight nineteen to 23, it seems to be that the fate of the earth follows the fate of man. So in other words, when man was in good standing with God before the fall, creation's working really well. Fall occurs, guess what? The ground is cursed. Romans 8 tells us, been subjected to futility. But it is in hope, as Romans eight twenty says. And one of the things Paul's bringing up in this section too is the glorification of the sons of God. So in other words, the hope that creation has is linked to uh, the hope of man you know, with, with his restoration. So it seems to me to be that there's a sense in which creation follows, follows man's destiny. So in the beginning, everything's good for both. Fall occurs, futility, curse. Then you get to glorification in the end. It seems to be that hope for the creation uh, is there as well. Now some people might say, well, that hope is, is just the millennium. Then after that, we blow everything up. And I would say, would you be okay with that? In other words, like you said, you know, it's, you, know you who you are now, you're going to be you for the millennium. But after that, we're starting over with an entirely new you. Probably that might change things a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, I'm a pretty strong believer that we're dealing with a restored, regenerated earth. Some of the terminology that's used in scripture, I think, affirms that. In Matthew 19, 28, um, when you're coming off the, uh, the rich young ruler who wasn't willing to give up all to follow Christ, and then Peter jumps up and says, but, w- you know, we've been willing, you know, we've given up everything. You know, Jesus says, you know, for those of you who have followed me in the regeneration, then he talks about, you know, sitting on his throne, then he talks about the apostles ruling over restored Israel, over the, over the 12, uh, uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But interesting, Jesus says in the regeneration. Now in Titus 3, 5, I think regeneration is, is brought in regard to the individual who's saved now. Most scholars think that the regeneration of Matthew 19, 28 is cosmic, which is connected with Jesus's reign from David's throne, connected with the restored tribes of Israel. So the polyngenesia, like the, the, again, Genesis, polyngenesia, again, Genesis, seems to indicate an earth that's been regenerated, that has been fixed. Uh, Colossians 1, 20 links the cross of Christ with the reconciliation of all things. And if you read Colossians 1, 15 to 20, it's talking about all, thing, all things visible and invisible. I mean, it's, it's including even material things. Uh, so it's very, very broad. And, and, and Christ is obviously the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 20 talks about the reconciliation of all things. Obviously, it would include God's image bearers who've been saved, but it's also bigger than that. It seems to refer to a cosmic reconciliation. And again, when you're dealing with reconciliation, you're talking about something that has, something's not right? <laughs> And then something's been fixed. It's been reconciled. So all things are reconciled. Uh, Acts 3.21 foretells the restoration of all things that the prophets talked about. So Peter refers to the restoration of all things. So again, I, I understand that we're you know, dealing with English translations of Greek words or whatever, but a lot of these rewords, regeneration, reconcile, restore, those are all you know things getting fixed, um, not annihilated with the start over. Um there's also a theological obviously biblical arguments have to kind of trump more abstract theological arguments, but many have noted that Satan does not get the victory over God's very good creation. So creation is referred to as good several times in Genesis one. Genesis one thirty one calls it very good. So um the restoration view I think properly takes into account that God fixes what has been, been marred, not only fix it but makes it better than ever. So I do believe that the new earth is this earth, uh, restored. You might say, what about 2 Peter 3, fire? I think that's a purging fire. I think there's a, that's not an annihilation, destruction, but a, a purging, uh, more like a metals going through. Metals don't go through fire for the purpose of being annihilated, but for being purged. So I think that's what's going on. Again, I understand there's arguments can be on the other side if you hold to annihilation view, I guess the good thing is even if you do hold to an annihilation with a start over, you still can affirm a tangible earth. So you might disagree how we get there. So it doesn't automatically make you spiritual vision model as opposed to a new creation model. But it does seem to be to be uh, restoration. Um, Okay, then number eight. uh, Let's look at that one. The new earth contains a capital city with activity inside and outside the new Jerusalem. So we have a new earth. And then we have a new Jerusalem. Like I said, at the beginning, I saw new heaven, new earth. And then you have more specific description of the city itself, which again appears to be half the size of the United States. But it's a city. And again, this particular point, I'm not going through a full discussion of the various precious stones and all these sorts of things. I'm just kind of giving you a broad survey here. It is a city with a wall, 72 yards, has four gates, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We're told that it's laid out as a square. Its wall is jasper. It's a city of gold. It has 12 foundation stones. Um, let's see, 12, 12, yeah, the, I got that a little bit mixed up there, so I'll skip that. The city has no need of the light of the sun for God, to, uh, for the, for God illumines it. So that, one of the interesting things that we are told about the, uh, the new Jerusalem is that the, it, has, it has no need of the light of the sun. We're told that God illumines it. So one thing we know for sure is that you don't have to have outside sources of light in the New Jerusalem. So you, you may get into a little bit of debate. Does that mean that the whole entire earth is lit up that way? I suppose that's possible. Is, is it just a statement that, you, or again, these are kind of more questions. I'm not giving you perfect answers. Is is the statement that the New Jerusalem does not need the light of the sun, a statement that there is no sun. And some people would say yes, other people would say no. But the one thing we do know is that for those that are in the new Jerusalem, there, there is no night there. there. There's no need for for the Lord. The Lord illumines it. All right, number nine. Um, nations exist and do real uh, culture and activity. And so this one thing I, I think sometimes is missed. You know, I, th- I think sometimes with over-spiritualized views of eternity... Uh, sometimes we might think, again, I'm kind of playing off a little bit of a caricature, but it, it is a pretty commonly held character. I'm sure it, it, you're probably not finding it with, with this room. But kind of the idea that uh, eternity is kind of like a generic hand-holding ceremony in the sky. You know, so, you know, so everybody's got zero, zero on their back because it doesn't matter. Like, you know, so there's no distinctions whatsoever. So, you know, it's, like I said, the... If you read the Old Testament picture, obviously Israel's a nation. They're supposed to be a light to other nations. Obviously the Messiah is what makes that happen. All all kinds of statements about the significance of nations. Genesis 10 to 11 talks about the beginning of the nations. If you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, they have huge sections on the nations. You read Daniel 2 and 7, you're, you're getting the nations of the times of the Gentiles. So there's a lot of talk about nations in Scripture. Obviously, in a fallen world, again, a lot of hatred, a lot of conquest ethic. We oftentimes think of negative things that are associated with that. Um, One thing I do find interesting, though, is when you you hit uh, Revelation 20 to 22, the people of God are continually referred to as the peoples and the nations, which is kind of interesting. So Revelation 21, 3, again, the statement, you know, they shall be his people. It's literally, it's plural, it's laoi. They shall be as peoples. And it seems to be that the peoples um, is referring to the nations of Revelation 21 verses 24 and 26 and the one reference in Revelation 22 as well. So I, I, it seems to me that eternity has both unity and diversity. So in other words, in one sense, you can say there's a people of God. If by that you mean we're all saved the same way. <laughs> so in other words, we, have all, we all have the same salvation. There's not different ways of salvation. Um, and yet, is there diversity within that? I think, I think that there is. So I don't, I don't see any indication that um, ethnicities and nations are, are wiped out for a generic humanity at that particular time. Again, it seems to be God glorifies himself with unity and diversity. God himself is unity and diversity. That's a basic doctrine of the Trinity, right? One God, three persons. What happens when God makes man? There's man, but then what does Genesis 1, 27 tell us? There's male and female. So is mankind diverse or unity? Again, it's both. So I think you see that. Um, Obviously, when you get to the family unit, you have a family, you have a mother, father, child. They're all equally persons. It could be different roles. So... I mean, you just have explicit reference to to the nations. Uh, You know, I mentioned it here. You know, the nations will walk. Again, when it comes to in reference uh, to the new Jerusalem, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory. So you're actually having kings of nations. So it's not just nations, but you actually have leaders. So, you know, it seems to me that you you do have government. You do have society um, uh, there. Now Again, oftentimes when we think of society and government, we think of negative because we're in a fallen world we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're told in Isaiah 9, 6, that the Messiah, you know, th- that the, uh, the government will rest on his shoulders. I mean, that's the a, a government. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it, you're dealing with society and culture and those kinds of things. We're also told in verse 26, they will bring the glory and honor of the nations uh, into it. So nations, kings. You know, I mentioned a couple of references to, uh, I, I, there, there's a lot of stuff in Isaiah 60. That's found in these uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 60 verse 11 says that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. So there's great great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Israel's a nation is significant. Then you also have the nations are significant. Obviously, the emphasis on this age in the church is a multi-ethnic group, the church, That's to take the gospel to the nations, but it seems like in line with the kingdom and the eternal state, you're actually having nations as, you know, geopolitical nations that have a function during this time. Well, I, I mean, it's a very short answer. I, I guess I would just say there. Isaiah 65, I think it's actually 16, 17 to 25, is actually related to both in some, but there ends up being a uh, presence of childbirth and untimely death in Isaiah 65, which would seem to distinguish it from the, etern- from the eternal state. So you have to kind of look for clues like that. Obviously, in Revelation 20, with the Kaidan formulas, you're getting progression, millennium, then eternal state. So I guess, I guess the key will be is you'll have passages like Zechariah 14. Um, the Lord, Zechariah 14:9. the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, his name is the only one. Like that hasn't happened yet. But yet it also talks about the end of Zechariah 14, that if, if a nation doesn't do what they're supposed to do, they're going to get a plague. So that doesn't seem to be the eternal state. That doesn't seem to be now. So there's a being a cluster of passages like Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14, and um, others, Zechariah 8, where you, you seem to have conditions that don't seem to fit today or the eternal state. So that's one way you can tell the difference. Yeah. Okay, number 10. Uh, the nations of the earth will live in perpetual peace. So we're told in Revelation 22c, the leaves of the tree refer the healing of the nations. I think the healing here is linked with the theropio concept. Again, uh, I don't think this is an indication that, again, nations that are fighting and then they need to be healed. But there seems to be something linked with the tree, the tree of life, which uh, maintains harmony. Now, I'm just speaking for myself, and obviously there's a lot of great things to look forward to on the new earth, but that is one of the top things that I'm looking for, is to see how you can have all these ethnicities and nations, and they all get along for the glory of God. <laughs> I and mean, that's something that's almost unfathomable <laughs> to think about in this age. And again, I think that's part of the, the glory of the restoration of all things, and, and, and to, to, like I said, you're, you're going to have real cultures and real ethnicities and nations and those things, and so it's going to be... Again, you always got to be really, really careful with current parallels. But I'm going to be honest, when I like see the opening ceremony of the Olympics, you know World War III is not going to happen on that day, right? So if there's one day where World War III is not going to happen, it's going to be the opening ceremonies where you have uh, the nations uh, coming together sort of thing. And so I'm not saying the eternal state is like the opening ceremony of the Olympics. <laughs> but whenever you get kind of those flashes of kind of like, harmony kind of, I always think of what it's going to be like on a, a million times more in the eternal state. Yeah. I spent a long time since I've been to Epcot Center. I don't even know what it's like anymore or whatever. I just remember, like, you go to this place and you get certain kind of eth- ethnic food. You go to another place, you get you. part. In other words, I think part of the beauty of the new earth is going to be all the, all the multiple cultures that are going on for the glory of God. <coughs> okay. When, when is that, what's it going to be based on? Genesis 10 and 11, separation of nations, or a progression down to the days where there's more nations yeah, how it works out, I mean, I, I, I go to Isaiah 2 on that. It, it, it's in that day where the Lord is reigning, it says he's going to make decisions on behalf of the nations. So I think that's going to have to do with boundaries. And obviously you have conquest ethic in this age and some groups that have gone out of exist, you know, So I'm just going to say Isaiah 2, the Lord's going to sort it all out. <laughs> so it's hard to know. So uh, I like to say, you know, I'm talking to, like in class, I'll say there's a difference between a what and a how and a why. Like sometimes I'll tell the students, like, I can tell you what's going to happen. I can't tell you how and, and all the time why it's going to be that way. But if I can't, and again, I'm not talking about you, but if I have a hard time explaining the how and the why, it doesn't make it not true. So just like before Israel was brought back in the land, who could have explained that 300 years before it happened or whatever? Just like, well, I know the Bible's saying it. It's teaching it Well, you tell, you know, even with restored tribes of Israel. It's like, well, how's that going to work out genetically? I don't know. <laughs> well, I know as God says it's going to happen, so. Yeah, Syria. Yeah, so Isaiah 19, yeah, 16 to 25 is a good passage. We actually have two representatives of Israel, um, two, two traditionally antagonistic nations, Egypt and Assyria, where they come together to worship the God of Israel while Israel's still there. Uh, they build a highway together so they can worship. There's even a monument to the Lord in the land of Egypt. So Isaiah 19 would probably be the best passage to talk about nations in the future in the uh, Old Testament. Okay, um, Number 11, progression of events and time exist. So there's a big misperception that the eternal state means time is no more. That's not true. I think once God committed himself to making uh, creation with matter and those things, you have progression of events. Uh, Revelation 22a, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Seems to indicate progression. I don't see any evidence in scripture why we'd have to go to a time. Again, that's kind of going back into a spiritual vision model where the eternity has to be like different physics and all this sort of stuff where it seems like um, it, there's, there's, there's con- continuity with some of our experiences now with, but without sin and death. So, and I would also say the fact that you have nations coming into the city with their culture and stuff indicates progression as that st- that's taking place. So I do think there's progression of, uh, of events. this. Okay. So we're right at one forty let, Let's do this because uh, we're supposed to be wrapped up in um, 45 minutes, which we pretty much did. I will take two questions if they're really questions. Okay. Yeah. So, where do they go? Is that what you're saying? Okay. I mean, if they, I, probably if the only people that we know are dying are unbelievers. So if somebody dies at the age of 100, they'll be thought accursed, Isaiah sixty five twenty. And I suppose they would probably, they could be part of the great white throne judgment. I don't know, I don't, if a believer died, we're not told that. Like, I, yeah, so they would either be glorified right away or, I, I don't, it, it doesn't say, but we do know of a, uh, right, so here, I did one here, I'm going to do one here and then over here. So let's, all right, go here. I would, I, I didn't. But if you read Matthew nineteen twenty-eight to thirty, again, I understand you can, you can have people that are family; they're not blood. <laughs> but Matthew nineteen twenty-eight does say those of you who have given up mother and father in relationships that you get that back. And so I don't know, obviously, how that. I, I mean, I think uh, I, it doesn't appear to be that there's procreation in marriage, but I still think that there's that you will still know family members and perhaps have close relationship. But the closest thing probably be Matthew nineteen twenty to 30, where Jesus says, if you've given up relationships, you get them back. So, okay, let's go right here. Can you help me understand the difference between the Gentiles and the church age and the nations and the church? As far as yeah. how those are related. Yeah, well, we're during an age where The nation, the Messiah's kingdom has not been set up on earth. So you're still having the times of the Gentile nations, which persecute the people of God. So you're having people from the nations as individuals saved and they comprise the church along with believing Israelites. But in the future, you're actually going to have nations as geopolitical entities serving the Lord, which you don't have now. So you're still in an age where Satan is doing his thing. Messiah has not set up his kingdom upon the earth. Revelation 2 and 3 seems to give the plight of the seven churches as that is needing to overcome because they're being persecuted. So I think the difference now is you have saved people from the nations, but in the future, you'll actually have nations that are saved. Okay, all right, one more. Go ahead. In, uh, in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but so my word will not pass away. How do we understand that in light of the uh, annihilation? Yeah, I would say that I think the pass away statements can refer to I mean there's a sense in which in regard to us we're told we've become new old things have passed away so so a lot of the language used of that is actually used of us but we're not annihilated with a start over so i think i think the pass away and even the revelation 21 i think pass away can be used of the old order is done entirely but it doesn't mean annihilation okay all right so we did, i think we did four there okay thank you